The Viewpoint with Songhez Umapete on Mondays and Tuesdays, 8 till 10 p.m. I was at a conference in Stellenbosch a month ago, and before that, two months before that, I was at a similar conference on social justice at Stellenbosch, and I met one of the most erudite and fluent and thoroughly schooled speakers stroke participants there. Ms. Peli Sangomo, development economist and board chair of Oxfam South Africa. We were at a conversation about social justice and how perhaps South Africa measures relative to the rest of the world, but importantly, relative to her stated objectives, stated policy goals, and the reality or outcomes of the social justice project. And a critical feature thereof was social justice in South Africa. How do we measure the impact and success of our social justice project using the Constitution and other instruments, of course, to ensure that there is progress of the kind that the Constitution itself as a transformative tool seeks? We also know their realities, and many of us are that reality of how difficult and tough times are in this society, in this economy, in this world, in these times. And perhaps the value then of social grants become that much more of an imperative conversation to have. But, of course, it's not without inherently difficult positions that the state finds itself in how to fund the social grants project as it was or as it is. And then when you talk about the universal basic income grant, the dynamics altogether change and the conversation and the questions that much more vexing. Let's have in the 16 or so minutes that we shortly have with Sis Pelisa, Dr. Loading, I hope. Sis Pelisa, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Alternative social security funding model for South Africa. Just that conversation for me makes me excited because... I'm I'm a critic of the social security program as rolls out as rolled out as social mm-hmm. grants as we know them. I have a fundamental problem because the social grant value and amount in terms of the number of people on the grant and the value each grant recipient gets, both those numbers are moving in the wrong way, in the wrong way because of the stresses felt domestically in the economy and how government does not perform. And I believe Mm -hmm. it is not sustainable. And of course, the Constitution, Section 27, specifically states that you have the right to Social Security, but it doesn't say Social Security must be in the form of money. Now, the question is, are there, if so, what are they, the alternative social security funding models for South Africa? And your thoughts on this are very important to me and I would imagine Mm -hmm. would be important for the rest of the nation. So share your thoughts with us on that question, please. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for such a beautiful introduction. And you know, just I had a broad smile all the way and started talking. And, and and I don't know if, by the way, some of the conversation you're asking around the alternative models is actually not have been overtaken by other events. So I'll tell you why. Mm. You must have been following the discussion around from several uh, um, social justice and economic justice organization around the issue of austerity measures, fiscal uh, consolidation, zero budgeting. All those concepts, they really actually mean the same thing. But you know, economics, we tend to use a lot of jargon, and part of it is to, it's intended, it's confusing. Like Those doctors and lawyers, yes. Yes, yeah. So so all these concepts mean the same thing, but at the heart, what they really mean is that government is cutting its spending. Mm. 
So in that sense, when we begin to introduce a conversation that says an alternative, you know, forms of funding social justice, like, where is it? Because in any case, the state is confronted with a growth crisis or economic development growth crisis. So therefore, what then becomes an alternative for the state is in particularly they have not addressed the very foundation unto which you need to build a resilient economy, right? So the first foundation that is quite important, you must have seen the, um, the results of Census 2022, which actually highlighted a very sad or grim picture regarding the educational outcomes. It says 12% of students who enroll out of the, the primary and the, the high school, only 12% of them that makes it through to high education. Now, why this is important, by the way? <clears throat> it's important because society, which is myself and you who have been mm. contributing to, to, to text, but also general society, anyone else, has to draw something that is called both social and economic dividends from the investment that the state is making. So the 12% uh, tertiary education uptake signal that we are not there yet, right? And not and about to get there if 88% do not. Make it, exactly. So immediately it sends you into, it sends a signal that you have a generation in South Africa that's going to be caught into intergenerational poverty. And why education is such an important measure. By the way, health is also an important measure. But I'll stick uh, uh, to education because it's uh, one of the very strong uh, indicator data that came out of uh, uh, Census 22. Is that education is important because the interface of social policy and economic policy is so important in society because that's where society draws its own social dividend and economic dividend. So in essence, that means social policy has to be strong, has to set up strong foundation so that individuals who are coming through the system, meaning particularly in education, are able to lead productive lives. And the enabler in that productivity is actually, um, is actually economic policy. So South Africa then, let alone now these educational outcomes are referred to, is that it's caught in what we call middle-income tracks, right? Firstly, low productivity under um, uh, uh, investment in terms of industrial development, losing industrial uh, capabilities to 19% in the last uh, 30 years, so meaning that we import most of the things that we have. But also, it also then also means that we still confronted with wage inequality. And wage inequality is such an important variable in society because amongst the key things that it does is that it facilitates uh, access to income at households, but also it would contribute in cases around breaking intergenerational poverty and equalizing in terms of uh, people who have had a history of racial and gender discrimination in terms of the economy. So then, let me then come back to your question and say, then what becomes an alternative? So in essence... Before you answer that question, mm -hmm. am I correct in deducing, if everything you say, I'm going to work on the assumption, everything you say is right, 
what this means purely on the strength of our population demographics is 80% of this 88% who do not get to access higher education and therefore are in a position to participate and contribute to the economy. 80% of that 88% is African people, obviously, because that's what the demographics are. And yeah, by no, extension, absolutely. by extension, when you're talking about intergenerational poverty, you are talking about largely, in a country of 60 million people, we're talking about 40 million people, give or take, whatever my math should lend me mm. to. Mm. 40 million people are at the risk of intergenerational poverty. What that means is intergenerational poverty, that cycle and how difficult it is to penetrate, it would take, give me a number, how long to create intergenerational middle-income class, not wealth, not intergenerational wealth, just an intergenerational middle-income. I mean, in other words, we are moving backwards. Yes, you know, absolutely. In fact, if you look at the data in terms of the expanded definition of unemployment, uh, the conservative uh, definition is 32.9%, and the expanded, it's actually it's about 62%. And this includes informal uh, workers, but also people who play entrepreneurs who are in the informal sector who just put up a uh, a table in one corner uh, with tomatoes, onion, apples, blah, blah, blah. And maybe in a day, they make 50 runs, sometimes they make 20 runs. What about and, those who are in formal employment, but literally are living hand to mouth? In other words, they are one paycheck away from being in any of the 32.9 or 62% definitions of unemployment because all they do is work to service the debt or the consumption of fuel or travel and transport and food and maybe, and maybe rent and school fees. That so definition then goes closer to 80%, presumably. Because, no, no, I think this is 2% accommodates them. But you know what? The issue is that those ones are even the most vulnerable because they can't even draw unemployment insurance fund. There's no social security net at all unless they access um, what you call a, a social wage or unless they access a um, house uh, or then they access, uh, you know, uh, free education in terms of, uh, you know, before the children move to um, either high school or tertiary institution. So you have actually a group of people that is more vulnerable. Let me go back quickly to the question when you were talking about the intergenerational poverty. Mm. That, in fact, data shows that, you know, when every time uh, uh, in the beginning of the year, uh, children are um, registering for grade R. Mm. You have, on average, between 1.2 million to 1.5 million. But by the time the the all of that uh, they reach, uh, which is grade 12, almost 750,000 have dropped out. They can be traced, and they they drop out between grade 8, grade 9, and grade 10. So they can be traced. So in essence, they come and join the system where they don't even have access to social security, let alone the fact that they have no skill, which is, is a skill that you need to sell in the labor market for you to earn an income. Um, and that's what it will mean that they are roaming around. So it's a very 70% uh, unemployment of youth that 
state say, you know, has really been abating uh, policymakers about. But here's the issue now, is that the, the, when we then talk about alternatives, is that in fact now the state actually has run out of even that option, the very concept of an alternative. Because if you're sitting with so many people who are quite vulnerable for a number of reasons, for example, you, you know, we've talk, spoken about the intergenerational poverty, mm. we've spoken about those in the informal sector, we've not spoken about workers who lost jobs during um, uh, COVID, COVID, right? Yeah. You know, also some of them who are likely to be working, uh, you know, full time. So we have all, you know, pockets of vulnerability. And then the minister in the budget speech then says, we have not been able to earn sufficient income from commodity sector because it's one of the critical sectors that really bankrolls our balance sheet, meaning that they pay the highest um, earnings in terms of the corporate tax. And you know what that signals? It signals very strongly that the structural uh, transformation in the economy has not even begun. Because it means that, in fact, we are still caught in the 1990 or even in the 1970s or the pre-oil crisis after 1973 of the uh, uh, minerals energy complex in this country. Right. One second. One second. It's 2056. I can take a call. I really can take a call if you put it to the board chair of Oxfam SA, development economist, Ms. Peli Sangoma, talking to us about alternative social security funding models for South Africa. Apparently, we're not even in a position to do so now. So dire the circumstances are. 2056. 086 2032. One quick call will do. Ms. Peli, so continue, please. Yes. So, so, so then the point I'm making then, so you then sitting with a situation where the national treasury, right, is really struggling because it had relied on this, you know, uh, minerals energy complex to actually sustain the economy and as well as the service side. And now, if you then have a history of uh, um, uh, economic discrimination and social discrimination, where you have a bigger population that in fact is actually has is semi-skilled or unskilled, then it means that a lot of them are not going to be supported by the economy. So in essence, it means that government has to make it sure that it provides a safety net. So the state of the economy, the point is then I'm just coming home to your mm, question. Mm. So the state of the economy now then reinforces the need for even much more social security. So the point you're making that, you know what, I'm not entirely in support of the social security. And I do think that there are many black people who might exactly be feeling like that because there is no one who wants to stand in the queue and still, um, you know, uh, receive social grant. The indignity associated with accessing this grant is an important point. Sorry to cut you, Sister Pelisa. I do have a call. Um, Aisha in Uppington. Good evening, Mama. Thank you so much for calling us. Aisha in Uppington, your quick call, please. Uh, must I be quick? Please. No. I missed you. Welcome back. <laughs> um, yeah, I certainly did. Uh, and listen here, I thought you were uh, climbing up and down a mountain. Um, did the, your guests say that they say they haven't got money to make the basic income grant? That's what I understood she said. Is that what she said? Well, Sis Pelisa, do you want to respond very quickly to that? Yes, no, no, I said South Africa has a growth crisis 
In fact, it's not entirely that they don't have. No, no, no. She's talking a lot. I want to know yes or no. Is that what she said? No, the answer is no. The answer is the state can afford. The state can afford the basic income grant, but there are preconditions and which it needs to be able uh, to Can support. I just talk quickly because there is sure. no okay. time? Yeah. Songhezo, I'm glad that you're back. Songhezo, these people, they're all mad. I will come with this with a solution. We are rich. They're not thinking right. That's all I want to say. Who isn't thinking right? All of them. They're all stupid. Them being who? <laughs> no, let's be careful of the language, please. I mean, I wouldn't want people to feel ostracized or me feel the broadcasting complaint because uh, okay. I have not attended okay, to the now, use and very loose terms. Let me put it in. Stupid. Let me put it in in in, in nice language. Yes. Um, uh, the government is not thinking correctly. Thank you so much, Mama. We do appreciate that. We're going to attend to that thought. We're going to attend to that thought. In other words, when somebody says the government is not thinking correctly, and I think in part it speaks to a trust deficit between the government and its communities. This is Pelisa. So in the context of somebody listening to this conversation, this is a question for you to please respond to after the break because we have to go to news now. How, first mm-hmm. of all, and I think it's an important point ultimately that has inadvertently been made, is there certainly is a trust deficit. People don't trust what government is doing. Government might do what it is doing, but people don't, or at least if that call is anything to go by, they don't find inspiration from it. They don't get the sense that this is working. And perhaps certain things might not be working if the figures that you have stated are anything to go by. And to the extent that certain things are working, how then does government correct its messaging so that it can sort of gain some lost ground from a trust deficit perspective? But especially important, respond to very briefly, the options associated with social grants, despite the fact that alternative in the true sense is very scarce, if even it exists. After the break, as Pelisa continues, let's take the news break now. Mr. Greg Hose, I missed him all right. SAFM 104 to 107 Nationwide. Viewpoint weekdays 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. We are live. We're on SAFM. The time is 21.05. Thank you so much, Greg Host, for the news. We look forward to hearing your voice again in 55 minutes from now at the top of this hour, 22 hours. To continue and to conclude the conversation from the last segment of the previous hour, Alternative Social Security Funding Models for South Africa, we are wrapping up our conversation with Ms. Peli Sangomo, Development Economist, as well as Board Chair of Oxfam South Africa. So, Peli, so let's talk about the trust deficit aspect first and the value government trust is to a given society for that society to gain better outcomes from the policies and programs of the government of the day so Mm -hmm. that there are less vulnerabilities or space or room for vulnerability because the trust factor is high or on the rise and Mm -hmm. people are more willing to approach the state or engage state information and spaces for the betterment 
of their affairs. And then finally, and we will wrap it up with the alternative or lack of alternative social security models. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. I mean, you know, one of the key things, in fact, um, I've been saying recently is that any political party that is in power needs to pay a- attention to the type of macroeconomic policies that it uh, deploys in society. Because, in, and one of the reasons is that any fiscal, by the way, uh, consolidation is often an anti-democratic project. And how it's an anti-democratic project is that, firstly, it does not only demobilize society in terms of lack of access to um, resources and opportunities, but also it, demobil- it, demobil- it demobilizes communities and households. And all they do is that they just lose uh, interest even in public discourse. In fact, let me just even make an example. I mean, the caller that had called earlier, I mean, you know, it, it felt like she says, I have so much to share, but I run out of energy. But not only that, you've seen that instead what is happening is that in South Africa, the relationship between state or government with communities is through violence. So when people interact with violence, I mean, when they interact with, with government, is that they have to ban schools, they ban clinics, and they ban uh, um, public institutions because what they see out of those public buildings, they see those buildings as representing power, connected to power, and that they feel that they actually don't have a stake. So sociologists, I mean, in South Africa, have really, really been calling for better forms of engagement. Now, there are always pockets of small interventions that you think that could lead into something that actually facilitates the old dialogue that we know in South Africa. For instance, there's this new model around the district model which actually encouraging, encourages municipalities to interact with communities, but also fundamentally to be more transparent in how they allocate budget, uh, budget and, and priorities. But obviously, the tension that you're going to deal with even in that sphere, even though the, the district development model is very progressive, the tension is that you don't, you have uh, needs that are not committed with resources. The uh, local government, for example, in terms of the equitable share, only receives 4.8%, and they have to rely on uh, additional revenue, which is electricity and um, and property rates. And a lot now, of the know, time they are behind even on that. Absolutely. But also it also means that they can't even collect because many people are actually not working. Mm. I mean, it would be interesting for me, I mean, it would be interesting to hear, you know, when uh, municipalities are openly diverging, they list, you know, that book where you have to sign that you're indigent. The mm. list of, of families that have signed up for that indigent status and the type of support that they... Assuming they, they know. Can, uh, Assuming even those areas have the kind of knowledge redounding to people to go and register. So it might not even be a true reflection precisely because of the asymmetries in local government. I've got literally two minutes. Alternative social security funding models for South Africa. In the context of then everything that has been said and the stress the fiscal um, or the fiscus is under and, and, and the doth of many things that really should not be more, particularly in these times, Social security, then how do we protect those who are identified by society as those needing 
interventions, state-controlled, state-sponsored interventions, but despite that need being identified, are in an environment that is precarious because more and more, as things move the way that they do, mm-hmm. precariously courting abject poverty because that is not guaranteed or mm. may not be guaranteed. Yes. I think starting point really is to really look at, even before you talk about rent and science. You've got 50 seconds, Sissy. Please work yes. with me. Yeah. Yes. You need to start changing the public governance planning system. You need to introduce multidisciplinary systems, I mean, a team within the public sector, so that, so that you know when you're addressing a farming issue, you're addressing water issue, you're addressing a road issue, you're addressing a school issue, you're addressing a clinic issue, etc. And what has been happening in South Africa is that, you know, departments address one thing and then something else gets addressed three years later and the other one as though people are actually nine pieces. But people are one person and Ten seconds. they need to enjoy exactly the same rights. So the state must reallocate its resources into industrial development. Let's leave it there. Sissy, I will call you back. I promise I will call you back. I promise I'll call you back. We have to end right there.